The title of this evening's talk is Metta, The Heart's Release. And beginning with some words from the Buddha. This is from the Samyutta Nikaya. It is in this way that we must train ourselves by liberation of the self through love. We will develop love. We will practice it. We will make it both a way and a basis. Take our stand upon it, store it up, and thoroughly set it going. The Buddha Dhamma, the teachings and the practices, are about transforming the heart, transforming the mind. This evening we'll consider one of the important teachings and practices of this transformation, which is classically called a Brahma Vihara, translated into English as a divine abiding. This radiant warmth and openness of metta, unconditional loving kindness and acceptance, unconditional friendship, the experience of connection and appreciation. And it isn't fraught with any clinging or attachment. And it's not necessarily even has a sense of obligation about it. This unconditional quality of mind and heart, it arises quite naturally when our Mindful attention penetrates the layer of conditioning that shuts us down to others. It's also important to recognize that this capacity of metta is present when concentration and mindfulness are able to begin penetrating the layers of conditioning that keep us from connecting with our own bodily and mental experiences with a clarity and with kindness. So, beginning with an old story, it's said that the Buddha first taught metta to a group of 500 monks who went into a particular and seemingly very congenial forest for their three-month rainy season retreat a forest that was adjacent to a village of very strong supporters who, in fact, offered to build these 500 monks, 500 huts for them to stay in during their rains retreat. They were also uh, happy to keep the monks' alms bowls filled, they said, during their practice period. And so the monks moved in and began practicing vipassana, began practicing insight meditation. It's said that the unseen beings, the forest devas who lived in this particular forest, became fearful. They became fearful of the monks and they felt actually quite put out of their home when they saw that the monks weren't just visiting the forest for a day or two. So 
these forest-dwelling beings began to create all kinds of frightening sounds and sights and emit some very, very distasteful odors, hoping that this would make these monks leave what they considered to be their forest. Well, soon enough, the monks became terrified, quite terrified, which broke their samadhi, broke their concentration, and disrupted their mindfulness. Some of them even developed a fever and some pain, bodily pain and dizziness, in conjunction with the fear that they were experiencing. And all of them felt that it was really just impossible to continue practicing in this place where they were. So they went to where the Buddha was staying and they related their tale to him. To which the Buddha responded, My beloved monks, he said, go back to exactly the same forest and practice your meditation there. Well, the monks responded to the Buddha's words by pleading that they, please, that they not be sent back to that forest. Again, saying that it was really impossible to practice there. Well, the monks' response to this was, Dear monks, because you went to practice meditation without a weapon of protection, you have encouraged many distractions and difficulties. This time, however, I will give you a weapon of protection, he said. It's said that at this point, the Buddha offered them the metta teaching and the practice. Out of their great, great respect for the Buddha, the monks didn't dare contradict his wishes. And so armed with the metta teaching and practice, they went back to the forest. For a while, they continued to experience some feelings of fear and anxiety, while at the same time they very diligently and virtuously practiced metta. Well, soon there were no more uh, fearful sights and sounds and distasteful smells coming. And whereas the devas... Uh, had previously been quite hostile towards the monks, their anger and their resentment disappeared when they began to feel the monks' metta. And in fact, feelings of respect and welcome and even reverence began to be the deva's experience, along with a sense of feeling quite connected, like with family. And the inclination arose in these devas to provide an environment of safety, to protect the monks from the particular dangers that might be lurking in the forest, in that forest, and things like tigers and snakes and that kind of stuff, so that they could practice meditation peacefully. After recovering and strengthening and deepening their concentration and their open-hearted presence through practicing metta. It's said that all 500 monks at some point then began practicing vipassana meditation again, insight meditation again, with metta as 
their foundation. And it's said that because they were able to practice meditation calmly and peacefully, they all, every one of them, became arhants, became fully enlightened beings during that particular rainy season retreat. So the great strength of a mind, of a heart, protected through the energy of metta, this quality, this capacity to stay present and connect with a heart that's fearless, with a mind, with a heart that's free of ill will. Gandhi called it the most powerful and the most subtle force in the universe. Metta is the energy that allows for and brings connection. It's the energy that keeps it all together. And this capacity is called for again and again and again throughout our practice. And of course, throughout the whole of our life. The practice and the energetic experience of metta is offered and is felt as a natural, heartfelt wish directed towards oneself, other particular people, or groups of beings. Wishing oneself and wishing others to be happy, to be at ease, to be safe and secure, to be at peace. In the process of, of developing, expanding, and deepening this energy of the heart, one of the things that we begin to taste is that our own wants, our own preferences, begin to pale. They are, of course, important on a number of levels. But within this incredible, radiant energy of warmth that begins to flow from our heart in the process of cultivating unconditional friendship and acceptance, unconditional kindness and love, our personal wants and our personal preferences begin to lose their usual intensity of almost always being very front and center. Sometimes my experience of metta, my experience of human kindness, it's like the sunshine. That warmth of the sun that permeates our outer and our inner sense of being. We could say that the practice of loving kindness is akin to letting the sunshine warm our heart, letting the sunshine warm our whole being, and then at some point radiating this quality out to the world around us. So where does this capacity to connect, to cultivate, to live with unconditional friendship, 
unconditional acceptance and kindness, where does it come from? It comes from our own experience of kindness, the experience of receiving kindness from others. It comes from our own experiences of receiving warmth, of receiving love that's been given to us freely from another. If you had never, ever experienced this unconditional kindness, you would have an extremely difficult time with this practice, with any practice, actually. But really, such people are very, very rare. Every one of us here has experienced at least some kindness given to us, some love, some warmth given freely. Every one of us. So a very simple example of a very ordinary experience. A few days before I left to come here for this retreat, at home in Taos, New Mexico, I walked into the post office to (coughs) pick up my mail. And as I was walking towards the entry door of the post office, someone opened the door for me. I didn't know that person. In fact, I'd never seen that person before. And we looked at each other directly and we smiled. And I, I thanked her. And I felt this warm connection between us. I'm sure she felt it as well. So just that, for instance. Just that. That's unconditional kindness offered freely. And each of us have, of course, experienced kindness from people that we know and with people that we're close to. Very likely kindness with maybe a more overt and stronger energy than what I just described. That unconditional warmth of metta, of loving-kindness. This is where the seeds come from. These are the seeds that are planted in us. These are the seeds that we cultivate. The kindness that we've been given is the kindness that we grow, that we water, that we fertilize, that we cultivate by giving metta to ourselves, and through offering it out to others. It's a circle. It's like a transmission. We've been given the transmission through the kindness offered to us from others. And we grow it, we cultivate it, and we give it out, offering the transmission back out again and again and again. It's this essential and beautiful circle the kindness that we receive and the kindness that we give. It's always a gift. Every instance of unconditional loving kindness given to us involves people giving us their time, their care, their support, or in some way their help. 
unconditional kindness given freely. It's a choice. It's a very natural choice that others make and that we make. And it has an effect on us. It also, of course, has an effect on others. Metta is really the ground, the bed, so to say, that all of the other immeasurable capacities of heart spring from, the other three divine abidings. Compassion, karuna in Pali, appreciative or empathetic joy, mudita in Pali, and equanimity, upekka in Pali. It's also the capacity of heart and of mind that allow the whole breadth of our meditation practice to unfold. Metta is what engenders the qualities of open-heartedness, acceptance, kindness, and patience. With each and all of these qualities really being the essential ground for us throughout the practice and the process of concentration and liberation. When I was in China in 1986, I found out that the contemporary Chinese written character for love was developed out of two ancient pictographs or symbols. The top symbol was a very simple one representing a person breathing, a symbol for breath. And the bottom symbol was one for the heart. So based in ancient Chinese pictographic writing, the character for metta love is breath through the heart. With the cultivation of metta, we're moving towards or we're inviting, we could say, the opening, the expansion of the heart, the mind. And continuing with this breath metaphor, metta is like the experience of breath moving through us. It's intangible. It's boundless. It's empty. Where from? Where to? And yet it's a very powerful energy that moves within us and from us. So what is it? In the texts, the Buddhist texts, it's often spoke of as non-ill will. The absence of ill will in relationship to ourselves meaning the absence of ill will in relationship to all the phenomena of one's body and one's mind, however they're manifesting moment to moment to moment. And the absence of ill will towards others. So no aversion in any direction, meaning no comparing ourselves in relationship to others, for instance. No comparison 
no conceit, no pride, no self-depreciation, no self-judgment, and no judgment or depreciation of others. So the absence of ill will in all directions. Here in retreat, how often we might think that maybe the person sitting next to us or the person sitting on the other side of the room, how often might we think that maybe, oh, their practice is so much better than mine. Or maybe the comparing mind says, that person isn't practicing nearly as well as I am. So this felt judgment, they're better than me, or I'm no good, or I'm great, no sleepiness, no movement, just look at that person, how they're sitting, how they're nodding, they're restless, moving around, etc., Well, obviously, this is not metta. We're creating a separation. Me, other. The heart, the mind is contracted. And it's uncomfortable. So we mindfully recognize and acknowledge that this too, is part of our practice. And we learn that one way to attend to the suffering of separation, this ache of self-centeredness, is to offer oneself metta. And also to offer the other person in the equation metta. One of the most striking aspects of metta, and maybe surprisingly so, is that metta is impersonal in nature. Even in relationship to what we think of as our self, what we're identified with and attached to in either a positive way or in a critical way as our self our body, our thoughts, our ideas, opinions, skills, our knowledge. Metta is impersonal in nature in relationship to other beings as well. The heart-mind filled with metta has the capacity to impartially embrace all beings. Not only those we're close to in our lives, those that it's easy to care about, or those who maybe might be useful or maybe amusing or pleasing to us. A heart-mind that's filled with metta holds the possibility of a capacity for what can be called immeasurable impartiality. This capacity of being able to connect and care for any being all beings. And some words from Krishnamurti's meditation journal. Meditation is one of the most extraordinary things. It's not an intellectual affair. 
But when the mind enters into the heart, the mind has quite a different quality. It is really then limitless. Limitless. It's a sense of living in a vast space where you are part of everything. Meditation is the movement of love. It isn't the love of the one or of the many. It's like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, whether golden or earthenware. It's inexhaustible. You must begin without knowing anything about it and move from innocence to innocence. The mind, the heart of metta, connects and accepts. It's non-critical, non-judgmental. Metta really has no interest in comparing or in fixing. It allows things to be as they are within the process of our practice that we've been developing here. It allows things to be as they are with an inner sense of well-being, patience, acceptance. Metta and aversion can't coexist. They can't exist simultaneously. As you're practicing here in the very specific ways that each of you are, essentially cultivating and developing a deeply concentrated clarity of attention, along with cultivating and strengthening a clear mindfulness, some of you are also working with the practice of metta in relationship to its purifying and its healing aspects. And with this, you are also learning that metta practice also aids the development of our capacity for a clear, deep, and strong, concentrated, mindful attention. As our capacity for metta grows and as it blossoms, there's an unwinding and an unbinding of the heart and mind from states of fear, states of anger, judgment, states of separation, disconnection. These strong, afflictive energies that move through the mind, the heart, and the body begin to unwind. They begin to weaken they begin to fade and even eventually to potentially dissolve under the strong medicine of the heart of metta, concentration, and mindfulness. Someone once asked the great Indian spiritual teacher, Nisargadatta Maharaj, someone said, and he taught... uh, pretty much all the time, through dialogue with his students. So someone once asked him, what can make me love? And Nisargadatta responded, you are love when you're not afraid. You are love when you're not afraid. Something that was amazing and so important for me when I began to discover it 
is that metta doesn't necessarily depend on initially liking someone or approving of them. It actually has nothing to do with approving of. With the heart of metta, we're able to connect with beings beneath that which we might not agree with or connect with beings who maybe act in ways that we might not like or maybe that we might even condone. Metta is acceptance on a very deep universal level but not necessarily approving. There aren't any favorites. No favoring one over another with metta. So it's not divisive. Metta is actually a unifying energy. It brings things together. It's goodwill towards all beings, all sentient beings. This most subtle and powerful energy of the universe And so from this we can begin to understand that it is impersonal in nature and that it's unconditional. No conditions needing to be met for metta to manifest. So reflecting on this for just a moment, if there was no metta in this world, this world would have flown apart, this world would have broken apart long ago. There have been periods throughout human history up until this very moment when there's been more or less metta manifesting in the world. More peaceful times, times of relative ease in the world and periods when the world has been in fact, is now increasingly unsettled, more violent times. This powerful energy of goodwill that unifies, that brings things together, so essentially necessary. The writer Dina Mitzger said, there are those who set fire to the world. We are in danger. There is no time to go slowly. There is no time not to love. And of course the Buddha said it so perfectly. Hatred can never cease by hatred. Only through love alone can healing happen. This is a universal law. If metta is the ground, the basis, and the impetus that our thoughts, our words, our actions spring from, if our motivations and our intentions spring from the heart of metta, the karma that's created will be wholesome and healing, both personally and in ways beyond our own small lives, and even in ways that we may never, ever know. I'd like to spend a few moments now exploring some of the experiences that we might think the experience of metta is supposed to be. 
I think that many of us expect metta to be a feeling, some familiar felt sense. And of course our expectation is uh, based on something that we're already familiar with. It's actually impossible to expect, impossible to look for something that we don't know. Something that we've never experienced. Or to look for something that maybe we have experienced uh, but didn't label as unconditional loving kindness, didn't label as unconditional friendship, metta. Sometimes metta can and does manifest as a familiar felt sense. But we can get caught. We can get stuck in expecting this. It's actually limiting. Metta isn't sentimental. It's not romantic. These are both totally conditional experiences. And metta isn't even necessarily a particularly juicy feeling. The heart, the mind, that's free from ill will, free from greed, free from fear, hatred, anger, in any given moment, is the mind of stillness, the heart of peacefulness. And it's in this absence of greed, in the absence of aversion, it's in the abiding stillness and the abiding peace that metta arises. And it may not be a feeling that we think of or are familiar with as love. There's a great power and strength in our capacity to connect within ourself and in relationship to others, to connect directly, clearly, patiently, and fearlessly with a mind, a heart, free of ill will. So we could say that this is metta, this unfettered, unconditional connection. And it's not so easy. There are many layers of conditioning that need to be seen or seen through and then let go of along the way of our practice. I found over the years that the qualities of honesty and humility are essential if practice is to continue to unfold, reaping its most amazing and freeing benefits. There's a beautiful story in the Anguttara Nikaya, the story of Sariputta's lion's roar, that demonstrates this very clearly. Sariputta was one of the Buddha's two chief disciples, and he was foremost in, the terms of, in terms of discernment and wisdom next to the Buddha. And the story takes place just after the completion of the three-month rainy season retreat. The monks were beginning to disperse and to uh, go on their various uh, duties and take up their various responsibilities in other places. And this is the sutta. 
On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwell- Blessed One was dwelling at Savati in Jetta's Grove at the Anattapindika's monastery. At that time, the Venerable Sariputta approached the Blessed One. Having paid homage to him, he sat down to one side and said, Lord, I have now completed the rains retreat at Savati and wish to leave on a country journey. And the Buddha replied, Sariputta, you may go whenever you're ready. The Venerable Sariputta rose from his seat and bowed to the Buddha, keeping him to his right, and departed. Soon after the Venerable Sariputta had left, one monk spoke to the Buddha, saying, The Venerable Sariputta has has hit me and has left on his journey without an apology. Right away, the Blessed One, the Buddha, called another monk and said, Go, monk, and call the Venerable Sariputta. Say, The Master calls you Sariputta. The monk did as he was bidden. And the Venerable Sariputta responded, saying, Yes, friend. And then the Venerable Mahamogalana and the Venerable Ananda went around to all the monks' lodgings and said, Come, reverend sirs, come, for today the Venerable Sariputta will utter his lion's roar in the presence of the Blessed One. The Venerable Sariputta approached the Buddha and after bowing to him, sat down to one side. And When he was seated, the Buddha said, One of your fellow monks here has complained that you hit him and left on your journey without an apology. The Venerable Sariputta responded, Lord, I remember the discourse you gave 12 years ago to Bhikkhu Rahula. Rahula was the Buddha's son the discourse you gave to your son, Bhikkhu Rahula, when he was 18 years old. You taught him to contemplate the nature of earth, water, fire, and air in order to nourish and develop the virtues of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Although your teaching was directed towards Rahula, I also learned from it. I have practiced and observed that teaching. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving-kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body, of the actions of the body in the body, and is not present, may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. Lord, I have practiced like the earth. Whether people throw clean substances, such as flowers, perfume, or fresh milk upon the earth, or foul, unclean substances like dung, urine, spittle, pus, and blood, yet for all that, the earth has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the earth, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility, and without ill will. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving-kindness, one who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body, and is not present, may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. But it is not my way to be rude to a fellow monk, hit him and walk on without apologizing. Lord, I have practiced like water, People use water to wash things clean and unclean, things soiled with dung, urine, spittle, pus, and blood. 
And yet for all that, water has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like water, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness, who does not practice becoming like water, might hit a fellow monk and go on his way without saying, I'm sorry. I'm not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be more like fire. Fire burns things pure and impure, the beautiful as well as the distasteful. Yet for all that, fire has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like fire, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness of seeing, hearing, thinking might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced like the air. Air blows over things clean and unclean and carries all smells, pleasing and unpleasing. And yet for all that, the air has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the air, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I have practiced mindfulness of the body in the body, the movement of the body in the movement of the body, the positions of the body in the positions of the body, the feelings in the feelings and the mind in the mind. One who does not practice mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. I am not such a monk. Lord, just as an untouchable boy or girl, begging vessel in hand and clad in rags, enters a village with a humble heart, even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is humble, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. I have practiced and learned every day. A monk who does not practice loving kindness and mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Sariputta continued to deliver his lion's roar. At one point, the accusing monk rose from his seat, arranged his upper robe over one shoulder, and with his head on the ground, bowed at the feet of the Buddha, saying, Lord, I committed an offense when I was so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful. I accused the venerable Sariputta falsely, wrongly, untruthfully. Let the Blessed One and the Sangha accept my admission of the offense and pardon me, and I shall practice restraint in the future. And the Buddha responded, Truly, monk, you committed an offense when you were so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful that you accused Sariputta falsely, wrongly, and untruthfully. But as you have recognized your offense and make amends, we pardon you. It is a sign of growth when one recognizes one's offense, makes amends, and in the future, practices restraint. Then the Buddha turned to the Venerable Sariputta, saying, 
Forgive this foolish man, Sariputta, before his head splits into seven pieces on this very spot. The Buddha, some people think he didn't have a sense of humor, but he did. (laughs) And Sariputta responded, I shall forgive him, Lord, if this revered monk also asks for my pardon as I may not have been skillful enough and created some misunderstanding, may he, too, forgive me. And then Sariputta and the accusing monk then bowed three times to each other and reconciled. Metta is one of the best medicines It's a very powerful medicine. Our human heart is naturally intuitive, naturally loving. Concentration, connection, connection and concentration, and kindness are absolutely natural human qualities, human capacities. And we see this sometimes in the smallest children. I was feeding one of my granddaughters when she was seven months old. I was giving her uh, pieces of banana. And she took one of the pieces from me and put it into my mouth with a big, huge smile erupting on her face as she proceeded to feed me. A very innocent and pure expression of the heart of kindness. A while ago I read a book that was about and by a 102-year-old African-American man named George Dawson. He grew up on his family's farm in East Texas, and he was the grandson of slaves. At the age of eight, George had to go to work to help support his family. So he never went to school, and he never learned how to read, until the age of 98, when he decided to attend a literacy program. And he learned how to read at the age of 98. And then he wrote a book about himself. It's an amazing, inspiring, and illuminating book. George describes how he learned to read the world and survive in it. So I'd like to read a little bit of this book uh, this evening. At one point, George is having a conversation with Richard. Richard is the man who helped George write the book. And they're talking together about George, who at the age of 101 was still living alone. And as George says, doing just fine. Richard saying, You're not really alone. People call and come by all day long. There's a community of people that care about you. You live by yourself, but no, you're not alone. George, that's right, you figured that out. Yes, it's nice that people stop by like they do. But they do that because they want to. I have nothing to give them. But they always feel better when they leave. Richard, that sounds like a riddle. 
George. It does, doesn't it? I'll tell you the answer for that. All my life I've been good to people. In all those years, every person I've met, I've treated with respect. People do the same for me. Richard, what goes around comes around. George, that's right. It all comes back, everything you do. Sometimes it might take a while, that's all. I tell people not to worry about things, not to worry about their lives. Things will be all right. People need to hear that. Life is good just as it is. There isn't anything I would change about my life. Richard, people worry too much? George, that's right. Be happy. Be happy for what you have. Help somebody instead of worrying. It'll make a person feel better. It's good to be generous. It doesn't take much to make a difference. Even the poorest man can just take the time to say hello. That can be a help. Have some sympathy for someone's hard luck story. It's not about money. Give what you can, and if you have nothing, at least pray for somebody. Have good thoughts. So the cultivation, the practice of metta is metta itself. As an example of the stability and the beauty of a heart-mind steeped in kind-heartedness, I'd like to continue a little bit with our 102-year-old bodhisattva, George Dawson. For much of his life, George endured a very pervasive racism and segregation in the South growing up in East Texas. And during the time that he grew up there, In East Texas, East Texas had had the highest rate of lynchings of any state in the Union. And actually this book begins when George was eight years old as he witnessed the lynching of a teenage boy who was his hero. When George was 65, he was doing yard work for a woman who had left his lunch on the back porch with her dogs. And this is George speaking now. She didn't see me from the shadow of the tree, but I watched as she put down two bowls on the floor for some dogs and another she set up on the shelf that was above the reach of the dogs. I climbed up on the porch and lifted the bowl off the shelf. It looked good, and as hungry as I was, it smelled even better. I was looking for a chair to sit in in a quiet spot to say grace. When I looked down and saw the two dogs eating the same food that was there for me on the shelf. There wasn't such a surprise in that. People didn't buy dog food in the sack like they do now. Dogs mostly ate the leftovers from the table. But what hit me was that she expected that I would eat out on the porch with the dogs. I didn't have to eat in their dining room, but back in their kitchen would have been all right. I told myself that I was good enough to eat a meal with people, not dogs. So I set the bowl back on the shelf. Being hungry, that wasn't so easy. I know she didn't plan to insult me 
She just didn't know better. Still, she could believe what she wanted. But I wasn't an animal. I wasn't going to eat with the dogs. If I did, she would go on believing that way. And maybe she would have been right. Late in the afternoon, she came by. Didn't you see the lunch I left out on the porch? I nodded. I saw the dogs on the porch. Well, the lunch on the shelf was for you. It was a good lunch. Thank you. I'm sure it was. It's just that I don't eat with dogs. As I said that, I looked her straight in the eye. I could tell she understood what I meant. She got angry and red in the face. But I didn't turn away. I didn't look down. I eat with people. I'm a human being. At my words, her face tightened and her look changed to meanness and anger. And from her mother and father and back through her grandparents, I could see a hundred years of anger and fear coming out towards me. I stood up to it and repeated, I'm a human being. She was so angry, she couldn't speak. I waited. Finally, in a cold tone, she said, You don't need to come back anymore. I said, That's right. I don't need to. And George goes on to say, I figure you can't hate someone for what they think and do. But you can hate yourself for the unacceptable ways you react to it. In the transformation, the opening into the greatness of heart, there's a great letting go a release, a relinquishment of much of what we've held on to, much of what we've grasped very tightly. There's a great release of the contractions of the heart, the past pains, the hurts, the anguish that we've taken in and taken on as mine, as me, as I am. It's not so easy to relinquish this, this conditioning, these habituated patterns of our self. But this is what binds the heart. This is what binds the mind. Our commitment to our practice, our willingness to take the journey, is what affords the transformation. And it's not so easy at times. But it's very, very well worth it. There's a tremendous fullness of energy which is constituted by great confidence and strength and a very clear straightforwardness that comes from a loving heart, that comes from the heart of metta. In closing the talk, I'd like to uh, share a story with you about a a uh, young Native American woman named Sue Ann Marie Big Crow.
Suan was born <clears throat> on March 15th in 1974 on the Pine Ridge, Pine Ridge Reservation. And she grew up with her sisters uh, on the reservation in her mother's three-bedroom house. Sue Ann's mother, Chick Big Crow, was known to be quite a strict mother. Her daughters always had to be in the house or in the yard uh, by the time the streetlights came on. The only after-school activities that she let them uh, take part in were structured and chaperoned. Unsupervised wanderings and then later uh, cruising around in cars were out. So Anne said that because of this, she and her sisters had to come up with their own fun because their mother wouldn't let them socialize outside of school. Chick Big Crow was strongly anti-drug and alcohol, belonging to the small but adamant minority on the reservation that takes this stance. When Sue Ann was nine years old, she was staying with her godmother on New Year's Eve when the woman's teenage son came home drunk and shot himself in the chest. The woman was too distraught to do anything. So Sue Ann called the ambulance and the police and cared for her godmother until other grown-ups arrived. Perhaps because of this incident, Sue Ann became as opposed to drug and alcohol as her mother was. She gave talks on the subject to school and youth groups, and she even made a video urging her message. Raul Bradford, a former Pine Ridge teacher and coach who was also a good friend of the Big Crow family, was once asked whether Sue Ann's public advocacy on this issue wasn't risky, given the prominence of alcohol in the life of the reservation. You have to understand, Raul said, Sue Ann didn't respond to peer pressure. Sue Ann was peer pressure. She was the backbone of any group she was in, and she was way wiser than her years. As strongly as Sue Ann's mother forbade certain activities, she encouraged her daughters in sports. And at one time or another, they did them all. Cross-country running and track, volleyball, cheerleading, softball, and basketball. When Sue Ann was in the fifth grade, she heard somewhere that to improve your dribbling, you should bounce a basketball a thousand times a day with each hand. She performed this daily exercise faithfully on the cement floor of the patio, her mother and sisters getting very tired of the sound. So, for variety, she would shoot layups against the gutter and against the drain pipe until they came loose from the house and had to be repaired. Some people who live in cities and towns near Indian reservations treat their Indian neighbors decently. Some don't. Some people in South Dakota hate Indians, unapologetically, and will tell you why. And in their voices, you can hear a particular American meanness that's centuries old. When teams from Pine Ridge play non-Indian teams, the question of race is always there. When Pine Ridge is the visiting team, usually the hosts are courteous and the players and fans have a really good time. But Pine Ridge coaches know that occasionally, at away games, their kids will be insulted. 
Their fans will feel unwelcome, and the host, Jim, will be dense with hostility. And the referees will call fouls on Indian players every chance they get. Sometimes in a game between Indian and non-Indian teams, the difference in race becomes an important and distracting part of the event. One place where Pine Ridge teams used to get harassed occasionally was the high school gymnasium in Leed, South Dakota. In the fall of 1988, the Pine Ridge Lady Thorpes went to Leed to play a basketball game. Sue Ann was a full member of the team by then. She was a freshman, 14 years old. Getting ready in the locker room, the Pine Ridge girls could hear the din coming from the lead fans. They were yelling fake Indian war cries. The usual plan for the pregame warm-up was the visiting team was for the visiting team to run onto the court in a line, then take a lap or two around the floor, shoot some baskets, and then go to their bench at courtside. And after that, then, the home team would come out and do the same, and then the game would begin. Usually the Lady Thorpes lined up for their entry more or less according to height, which meant that senior Donnie DeCorey, one of the tallest, went first. As the team was waiting in the hallway leading to the locker room, the heckling got louder, and some fans were waving food stamps, a reference to the reservations receiving federal aid. Others were yelling, where's the cheese? The joke being that if Indians were lining up, up, it must be to get some commodity cheese. The lead high school band had joined in with fake Indian drumming and a fake Indian tune. Donnie DeCorey looked out the door and told her teammates, I can't handle this. Sue Ann quickly offered to go in her place. She was so eager that Donnie became suspicious and said, don't embarrass us. Sue Ann said, I won't. I won't embarrass you. So Donnie gave Sue Ann the ball, and Sue Ann stood first in line. She came running onto the court, dribbling the basketball, with her teammates running behind. On the court, the noise was deafening. Sue Ann went right down the middle and suddenly stopped when she got to center court. Her teammates were taken by surprise, and some of them bumped into each other. Coach Amiga at the rear of the line didn't know why they had stopped. Sue Ann turned to Donnie DeCorey and tossed her the ball. Then she unbuttoned her... Then she stepped into the jump ball circle at center court, facing the lead fans. She unbuttoned her warm-up jacket and took it off and draped it over her shoulder and began to do the Lakota shawl dance. Sue Ann knew all of the traditional dances. She had competed in many powwows as a little girl. And the dance she chose was a young woman's dance, graceful, modest, and show-offy, all at the same time. I couldn't believe it. She was powwowing like get down, Donnie DeCorey said. And then... Sue Ann started to sing. She began to sing in Lakota, swaying back and forth in the jump ball circle and doing the shawl dance using her warm-up jacket as a shawl. 
the crowd went completely silent. All that stuff. The lead fans were yelling. It was like she reversed it somehow, a teammate said. And then, in the sudden quiet, all they could hear was her Lakota song. Zuan dropped her jacket, took the ball from Donnie to Corey, and ran a lap around the court, dribbling expertly and fast. The audience began to cheer and applaud. She sprinted to the basket, went up in the air, and laid the ball through the hoop, with the fans cheering very loudly now. And of course, Pine Ridge went on to win the game. The person who transmitted this story said that he couldn't find evidence of a single act as elegant, as generous, or as transformative or transcendent as Suan's dance at center court in the gym at Leed. And I agree. That was Suan's lion's roar. And a poem, short poem from Hafiz called The Sun Never Says. Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look at what happens with a love like that. It lights up the whole sky. There's a fullness of energy and a confident way to walk our human path when the feeling of loving-kindness is strong. The Buddha called this tremendous fullness of energy the lion's roar. He said when he himself spoke, it was like the lion's roar in the jungle because of the power behind his words was born out of loving-kindness, loving-care, and great compassion. The real results of practice often come as a surprise. You encounter a a difficult situation, for instance, and do what seems to come quite naturally. And then, after the fact, you realize that you handle the situation very differently from the way you used to. The natural effortless expression of a very clearly focused, mindful awareness, loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity is the true result. At the time, you do what seems really perfectly natural. It's no big deal, you might say, to a friend who asks how you were able to stay so present and do what needed to be done so easily. But it is a big deal in a way because the natural expression of these qualities changes your life and changes the lives of everyone you encounter to varying degrees. 
And in closing the talk this evening, and because tomorrow is Valentine's Day, I'd like to read a, a, a Valentine that was sent to me <clears throat> some years ago from a student. It came with a, a one-inch diameter, very bright red sticker that said on it, This is love. And this is the poem that came for the Valentine with this red sticker. Take this tiny label. Stick it on the dining table. Stick it on your favorite book. Stick it where you always look. Stick it on some brand new shoes. Stick it on the evening news. Stick it on a broken heart. Stick it on a hospice chart. Stick it on a violin. Stick it on your thinnest skin. Stick it on a long-lost friend. Stick it on a bill to send. Stick it on your desk or wall. Use it on a conference call. Stick it on a microphone. Feel it when you're all alone. Put it on a mirror, yes. See it when your hair's a mess. Stick it on the Senate floor. Stick it on the White House door. Stick it on the other side. Stick it where it cannot hide. Can you see love everywhere? We hope we can. We hope we dare. And let's just sit quietly for a moment. May all of the wholesome energies and fruits that manifest through our practice serve with immeasurable impartiality, without bias, without prejudice, towards the welfare, the happiness, and the liberation of all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.